This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. Last week we talked about the likely end of fair pay agreements and the widening of 90-day trials. And today, DLA Piper partner and employment law expert Carl Blake is here to talk about a few other of the changes that may be in the pipeline once the new government is formed perhaps in early November. Thank you for coming in, Carl. (laughs) Now, there's a couple of areas where there is some agreement, and I think anti-slavery legislation is one that looks like it might remain. Correct. So under the Labor government, we had had a sort of a a time frame for at least sort of a five-year plan to try and catch up with uh, overseas entities, including Australia, but more commonly in Europe, to uh, improve our ESG performance as a country, um, critical for our trading partners, our reputation uh, nationally and in the global um, operating area. And things like uh, gender pay gap reporting and modern slavery were on that list. And they will still be under the new government, pretty much however it's formed. Uh, we've got support from uh, National to continue those plans. We've got support from New Zealand First. Um, act a little bit quiet on that, but I think generally the consensus is that we need to move in this direction to be competitive as a country. Right. And from this point, it diverges quite substantially in terms of employment, things that are happening in the workplace, because National and ACT particularly take a a very different view. Mm. Uh, Let's talk about parental leave. It's one that's caught your eye. Yes, certainly. So um, National's policy is to actually make it um, more flexible. So we've got at the moment, you'll be aware, um, a a birth partner, a birth parent, sorry, can um, have a a set block of leave and they can share that with their partner, so long as it doesn't exceed the the, the 12 months or six months or whatever you're entitled to. National's plan is to make that more flexible in the sense of not necessarily having to take it in one block, um, being able to share it amongst uh, your partner, but also, for instance, taking a month off, taking some time off together, um, maybe then going back to work and then having some more time off, um, which obviously as a, as a parent um, would create greater flexibility. Um, some of the things that employers would need to think about is how to cover a parental leave person. Um, at the moment that's relatively straightforward. Um, if someone takes anything from three, six, nine months, 12 months off work, the typical arrangement is to replace that person with a fixed term cover um, while that person's on leave. Now that's a lot simpler than trying to replace someone who's potentially can sporadically come back and return. And So it's just something else to think about behind the scenes as to how an employer would, would accommodate that. In um, the Toil and Trouble last week, I made a throwaway comment about getting rid of Labor Day, but of course they have, um, certain MPs have talked about this idea of New Zealanders having too many um, public holidays. What what do you think the likelihood of that yeah, is? Yeah, so actually, um, so Axe has been quite vocal about um, trying to offset the impact of Matariki, not being so bold as to remove Matariki at all, but rather saying, well, we'll keep that, but we'll take away January the 2nd. Mm-hmm. And as a way of effectively easing the the burden of the um, on the employer, look, I mean it's it's one day a year. I know that adds up, but it's um, I think it's just trying to offset the the additional the thirteenth day back to now the, the traditional twelve. Right, um, contractors. The eternal question of contractors. How is that likely to be viewed? Yeah, um, <laughs> very different views here. We've got Labor, of course, wanting to well, at least thinking about proposing maybe a third category, calling it dependent contractors, where you have a contractor arrangement only with one principal. 
um, maybe giving some rights to those types of contractors that an employee might have. And then we've got uh, ACT looking at a very much opposite approach, which is if you're a contractor, you simply cannot um, claim that you're an employee and, and barring those types of claims on the basis that from a commercial perspective there are a number of advantages to being a contractor and that shouldn't be interfered with. Um, now look, I mean the common ground logic is generally in the middle. Of course you've got your true contractors who absolutely uh, benefit from that arrangement from anything from flexibility through to tax um, uh, advantages right through to the other end of the scale where the very few, in my experience, unscrupulous employers might want to use contractors for purely the ability to hire and fire without cause, um, which is where employees would be, well, effectively contractors who are employees at, at law are disadvantaged. Look, I'm not seeing a lot of that uh, in, my, in my patch. I think it's not a huge area of concern. Most contractors are genuinely in it on his or her own account. And, and that works for them. So I think too much interference with contractual arrangements starts to get a bit, uh, bit complex. Interesting. Um, ACT is certainly very down on the Employment Relations Authority, finding fault with the way it operates too slow and all that. What is the likelihood of them being able to affect some change at that level? Yeah, look, I think where they're coming from, they make a good point. There is frustration. I'm finding it more to actually get in front of the Employment Relations Authority. The actual decision-making process, in my experience, hasn't been too bad, but I know that there have been some difficulties. I know there's been a backlog. Um, I know that um, reference to the pandemic is now becoming a rather um, potentially old reason for that, but there certainly is a very long lag to get before the authority. I mean, it's obviously it's a resourcing issue. It's, it's complex. Um, Act wanting to require determinations being made within a month I think is aspirational. I think it's, it's positive that they're just trying to shrink that. Um, there can be a host of reasons why that's just simply not workable but when you look at some of the the um, the urgency regarding some of the cases brought, um, particularly reinstatement or ones where time is of the essence, then having a delay of, of months is simply not, not workable. When I look at the list of changes that have been proposed that you've supplied to me, National don't seem to have too many. ACT have a lot, so they've obviously listened to employers quite a lot and taken on board their concerns. New Zealand First have a few sort of lateral things, a few sort of tangential things that aren't really in the mainstream of what we've been talking about in employment law, but nevertheless. Um, a two-year lifeline entitlement for the job seeker work-ready benefit. What is that? Yes, yeah, so they are approaching this differently. Similarly with um, the, the, the wanting to raise the minimum wage to $25, but making a concession, a tax concession, so employers can afford that. They're certainly looking at that, encouraging um, the the, the employee who's not necessarily afforded the same protections or, or benefits, trying to lift that. And that, that example you've raised is one of those as well. It's, it's, um, it's certainly coming from a, a place of wanting to improve employee rights, I think is the key behind the, their policies from an employment perspective. Right. Um, and another one they've got here is reinstate the targeted trade and apprenticeship fund. Yeah, again, again, trying to get, it's this whole, in line with, say, 90-day trial periods, getting people a chance, getting people 
into work as an apprentice or whatever level and making it easier for employers to afford that as part of the scheme to get more people who need that little boost at the start into the workforce. So it's not really done with the employers in mind, it's more done with the, the people coming through in mind? Yes, yeah, so it's certainly aimed at helping the employees and I think, but they're also trying to make it so it's not too onerous on the employer, for example with the tax benefits linked to raising the minimum wage. So Carl, just finally, how do employment lawyers sort of take on board all these big changes? I mean, are you all frantically trying to school yourself on what could be coming or are you thinking Christmas is coming, it's not going to happen um, any time soon? That's an excellent question. I think last, your, on your um, this session last week, that's the biggest change we've got and I don't want to sort of um, cover what you've covered last week, but I think fair pay agreements is the yeah. biggest issue. Yeah. Many are in train. We've got people sitting around negotiating tables as we speak thinking do we just keep having these meetings or what do we do that's the biggest focus I think that's where a lot of attention is being um, drawn the other changes are wait and see we know broadly where they're going to go but nothing's going to materially need to be changed or at least how employers operate between now and when a new government's formed there's nothing really sort of time critical for the has there, there will no doubt be changes that need um, employment agreements updated, policies updated. That's always the case with a change of law. That is inevitable after a change of government, but that will generally flow. But I think the fair pay agreement is, the issue is the biggest in the sense that it will change how actually people are operating and negotiating right now. That's great. Thank mm. you very much. Oh, thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Local sex toy maker Sheer Satisfaction was a brand launched two years ago under the leadership of Taslim Parsons and has experienced substantial growth over the time as its products are sold not just in adult stores but in mainstream retail outlets. And the company is now targeting the Australian market. Taslim joins me now from Wellington. Thank you for joining us. Um, we spoke to you two years ago uh, when the, the brand was just launching. Now tell us what's happened over the two years. Um, well, it's been it's been a journey, that's for sure. Um, we've grown significantly, so we've grown around thirty five percent, which is fantastic. Um, and as you said, we are now in almost every adult retailer in New Zealand, and um, a number of non adult mainstream retailers as well, um, which you know they're taking significant portions portions of our range. So it's it's been really interesting. Um, and we've grown into Australia. We've got some retailers in Australia, but we're, we've got our sights set on growing that market um, and just taking it to the next level. From what I remember from two years ago, the reason that you were able to make this push into the sort of mainstream retail scene is because your products are sort of aimed a little bit differently, aren't they, than the usual sex toy type brand? Yeah, so we, I mean, we are... Um, you know they're beautiful products they're largely silicon um they look amazing um and and they're high quality they're quite luxurious um the main range is quite luxurious and so um you know there's a there's a lot less resistance for mainstream retailers to have them have them in, in store or online a lot of them have got them online um so it's yeah but it's been it's been amazing it's yeah. yeah, the growth is fantastic. <laughs> even pharmacies, even pharmacies are taking, you know, adult toys now. So it's incredible. Is is part of the appeal also that they don't specifically look like what you imagine sex toys to look like? Yeah, they're not phallic in any way. Um, and I think that, you know, um, 
for somebody who doesn't know and isn't aware, you they could be mistaken for something else, you know, a, a back massager or a, I don't know, face cleaner or something, <laughs> depending on the product. Um, some obviously do look like sex toys. <laughs> um, and that's okay. I think the conversation's changed. And I think that even in the last two or three years, people are much more open to talking about sexual wellness and sex products and, and enhancing their personal sex lives. Is your archetypal customer a woman? Um, it's pretty split, actually, 50-50 or maybe 60-40. Um, I think because our products are non-gendered, we don't talk about men's products or women's products. Um, and the colours aren't all pink. So, you know, there's there's a range for everybody. And so I think a lot of times we get male males buying them for their their partners as well. Um, I mean, I did an expo recently and we sold out of technically male products and it was a woman's lifestyle expo. So women were buying them for their male partners as well. That's amazing. So you've got this aspiration to go into Australia. Why do you think a New Zealand company from Wellington can take on the Australian market? Um, we have high hopes and we I think we have seen from the retailers that we already work with in Australia, they love the range. It's new, it's different. Um, I believe there's only one Australian brand at the moment, maybe two. Um, so there's room for growth in the market. And, you know, I, I think and just from the research we've had from, you know, the likes of NZTE who are really helping us um, is that Australians deem New Zealand companies or New Zealanders as a little cousin almost and they like us um, and they like working with us so I you know I, I've got great relationships with our Australian retailers um, and you know they take largely take share satisfaction products on a regular basis. Being at the helm of a company like Share Satisfaction how much do you have to keep up with what's happening in the broader market particularly when it's to do with technology which I know is you know generating a whole new branch of, of products in this area. Yeah, it's moving really fast. It moves, it does move quickly. And I mean, what we're seeing a lot of, I was I was in Hong Kong recently for um, the uh, Global Adult Toy Expo. And, and you know, there's, there were 200, over 200 manufacturers there with their wares showing stuff. And what I noticed in the main was that material, the material that the products are made from has just changed so much. The quality is significantly better than it was maybe five years ago. Um, but technology has moved and things are really realistic and feel amazing. The app toys have taken off and the apps are improving so much. Um, it's phenomenal. It just it kind of, I saw some, I saw things, Dita. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you did. It sounds really fascinating, actually. It was. <laughs> what about a cost of living crisis, though? I mean, sex toys, I think, would be considered by most people as a nice to have, not a need to have, although I'm sure maybe some consider them a need to have. Um, how does that cost of living crisis impact your business? Yeah, it, we've seen a slight downturn. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we also saw what, what, was known as a lipstick effect where 
if people can't go on an amazing holiday or expensive date nights out or whatever, you know, they'll buy themselves a toy, which is fantastic because they can stay in and have a great time with themselves or their partner um, without it costing $200. Um, so, yes, we've seen a downturn. And of course, you know, if you're struggling to put food on the table, you're not going to go out and buy yourself a sex toy. Um, but, you know, hopefully we've not been hit too badly and we're still seeing quite a large sell through of our toys karma is still one of our best selling toys and it, it's regularly you know in the top two every single month in terms of our sales and so coming up to christmas do you get a bump and if so is karma uh, sort of leading that and what is karma if you can just explain it <laughs> yeah so yes christmas we always see a lift at christmas um it gets incredibly busy um, all our retailers are stocking up as well. So we run promos for our retailers so that they can, you know, sell more product. Um, we'll do a lot of social media. Um, so, yes, I would I would expect to see a lift we have every year. Um, and historically, Christmas is amazing for the sex toy industry. Um, Karma is our best selling toy. It was the toy that we launched Share Satisfaction with. And it's a dual simulation vibrator so it's a suction and internal stimulation absolutely amazing toy incredible and um and it sells it just uh, people love it. it they still love it and it's you know i thought lots of people had it but clearly they don't and people keep buying karma it's an amazing product that's great Tesson, thank you very much for talking to nbr <laughs> thank you so much thank you NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. National campaign on a huge transport overhaul, including new highways and roading projects, as well as the end of the fuel incentives for clean cars. Retailer Z Energy has been busy expanding its charging network. So what are the consequences of National's proposals on the transport sector? With us is Z Energy Chief Executive Lindis Jones. Lindis, just firstly, you've been in that Chief Executive position a few months now. How are you finding it? You're in quite a disruptive time for the transport sector. Well, it's been good fun, and it's a privilege to lead an organisation like Z in the middle of uh, what we're going through in terms of the energy transition. So good fun and hard work. So what are your current priorities with EVs? I see you've put out a number of statements recently talking about battery, home charging, roaming trials. Yes, I think what we know is that when, whether you're a household or a CEO of a large company, trying to figure out how you decarbonise your business or your household is just hard and complicated. We've just got to make it simple. And the number one thing for us is just building out a high quality EV charging network where people know what they're going to get when they turn up to charge their car. So that's kind of the number one priority for us at this point in time. And you want a charging network, you've got a, a, quite an extensive footprint of stations, so at every station, or what's your plans there? Uh, so we've chosen uh, sites specifically for where we believe they'll be most used for owners of EVs. So where you buy fuel is not necessarily going to be the most convenient place to charge an EV. For many sites, yes, uh, but we're learning as we go, and we do have... Uh, there is some overlap, but we're also looking at other locations as well from time to time. And what's interest been like where you have got charges? 
Uh, so it's been, the interest has been higher than we expected. Uh, so demand and utilisation is higher than we uh, forecasted. And I think that's uh, incrementally the number of EVs in New Zealand are more than we forecast even a year ago. So it's just reflecting that, you know, the demand for electric vehicles and decarbonising um, New Zealand's light vehicle fleet. What kind of investment does it take to expand your network? Yeah, so it really depends on a whole lot of things, in particular the cost to connect to the grid. So that can be um, at one level, maybe a couple of hundred thousand dollars for, for one site or one charger, but then depending on the capacity you need for those locations and what it costs to connect to the electricity grid, it can be many, many multiples of that. So it's a highly uncertain level of investment by location. And that's one of its challenges. What are the consequences of Nationals' transport plans if they come to fruition in terms of expanding the roading network and bringing to an end the clean car incentives? Yes, yeah, so I think the, at its core, um, where the government is focusing in terms of decarbonising the light vehicle fleet is the right thing to do because that's probably the least regret choice we've got as a country. So those measures seem to support that. In terms of uh, removing the clean car discount, that's, that's a choice for the government, how they want to do it. But in terms of their commitment to um, help industry build out an EV charging network, absolutely, um, we're standing ready to help them fulfil upon that mission. Do you think demand will still be there for EVs and plug-in hybrids without the incentive? Oh, what we've seen overseas is that incentives do matter. So um, when incentives do change, the level of demand uh, does go down or up, depending whether the incentives go up or down. But what we forecast and I think what um, most industry participants realise is that the cost of electric vehicles is coming down such that it's much more equivalent to um, buying an internal combustion engine. That said, buying a, a new vehicle is a significant investment, so it's not going to change overnight. And how does this change your footprint going forward in terms of investment in EV? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Um, if we really focus on what matters for the customers, we know that it's going to be uh, it's going to focus on ease, convenience and reliability. And a lot of our locations provide that already. And, you know, while we often get called a fuel company, we've always thought ourselves as an energy company. So convenient locations, whether we're charging electric vehicles or filling uh, cars with traditional fuel, we're well suited to our locations and we've got the capability to do both. So uh, substantially the same kind of network shape and size going into the future, we believe. Okay, so you are continuing with your plans, even despite the change of government? Absolutely, yeah. So it looks as though the clean car standard will stay, which is the onus on vehicle importers. Does that have any onus on you? No, I think having emission standards for vehicles is extremely orthodox and standard across you know, globally, so that makes sense and uh, it's predictable and so it doesn't really have an impact on us.
What about the outlook for fuel prices? What's your thoughts on where prices are heading into the summer and new year? Well, a couple of things. When, uh, in terms of the government's intention to remove the tax in Auckland, um, the fuel price that uh, will is determined in the market on a given day, and it's highly likely that, given the cost reduction, those prices, um, you know, will settle at a lower price. They'll get completed down. But if we step right back, prices are set on an international market by supply and demand factors. And what we know from the last quarter is that uh, demand for oil globally is at record high levels. So we've got really high demand and we've got constrained supply. So we've seen OPEC be pretty disciplined in terms of its uh, the amount of oil that it's producing. And we've seen absolutely a recovery in all sectors from COVID and, and most notably uh, international travel, uh, uh, aeroplane travel. So yeah, we do see forecast really high demand, constrained supply, and I don't know what the future oil price is going to be, but everything suggests that uh, where we are now is about what we can expect going into summer. And if we look at the geopolitical risks, that puts more emphasis on supply as well. You've got multiple Russia, Ukraine, and now Israel, Gaza. Yeah, so those factors that drive uh, supply and demand on a global level, we, you know, they're the, they relate to the headlines that we read and hear about every single day. So anything in terms of geopolitical tensions that could cause a response does impact the, the oil price. So, um, yeah, so while, you know, if you look at the price today, it's got all the information uh, in the market that determines what the price should be. But with such instability, there can be new news tomorrow that increases the volatility of prices. So kind of high and volatile prices is what we've seen. And there's nothing to suggest that won't continue. Linda Jones, thanks for your time. Okay, thank you. TVNZ has released a financial snapshot for the full year to June 30, 2023, in which revenue and profits are down amid a tougher overall environment and changing viewing patterns, factors that have been a constant for the broadcaster recently. But it has also said it will be using its cash reserves to speed up its digital transformation. I'm joined by Interim CEO Brent McAnulty. Thank you, Brent, for joining us. Morning, Dita. Pleasure Hello. to be here. Great. Now, Brent, can you tell us of these cash reserves you're talking about? What are these? So it's around, um, and it varies from month to month, but around $100 million that we've built up um, over the years through, um, uh, with, with, the, with the sponsorship of our, of our shareholder um, uh, along every step of the way to enable us to uh, invest in our digital future really important to us that that, that we uh, remain sustainable and, and for us to do it off our retained earnings rather than uh, rely on the shareholder to, uh, to um, invest more money um, in, into the entity. So this obviously means that you won't be paying a dividend to the shareholder and they've foregone that in order for you to do this transformation. Yeah, and that's that's been the uh, the accommodation that's been made uh, up until now. Um, actually, with with both the previous national government and uh, and the Labor government, obviously uh, with a change of government, we'll need to uh, to to talk to our 
our new shareholders and and um, uh, see that what their view is on the situation. But um, you know, I, I would imagine that uh, being able to do this sustainably ourselves, out of cash reserves and out of future earnings as well, um, uh, would be uh, a lot more uh, palatable to uh, to any government rather than um, to going cap in hand to them. So you're not going to use the whole hundred million in this first year, are you? How are you going to stagger it? No, and look, the, when, when I say we've got a hundred million there, we, we obviously need uh, we need to um, uh, you know, have an amount that we can operate from month to month. Obviously, you know. Uh, so um, no, this will be staggered over the next over the next uh, four to five years, uh, and 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 you know we also uh, have a plan to to grow revenue over that time as well because um, you know at the moment when you talk about technology um, costs going forward, you know there's always uncertainty with them. We're still in an early stage where we're we have an RFP out looking at a master uh, at appointing a master services uh, integrator to to drive our, our technology changes and. Uh, we're still in early stage knowing uh, how much that will cost and, and, and really scoping what, what that's going to look like. I mean, in the four years that I've been doing this job and I've covered all of TVNZ's results, digital transformation is a constant in every result announcement. So what is different about today that hasn't been said before? Well, what's different now is we have a transformation team uh, that's set up and, and they've been working... Uh, yeah, since uh, since the start of this financial year in particular, have been working uh, really hard. We've had a, um, an initiative where we've asked people in the business to pitch their ideas around around the future of TVNZ. You know, we've received hundreds of initiatives from from our own staff, uh, which are now in a funnel, which we're evaluating. Uh, that's been a, a an eight week process that uh, is is coming to an end now, and and, and uh, we'll now work with our board on on on. Uh, prioritising those initiatives that have come forward. I think the other thing too to, to, to note is that um, the fin- financial year we're talking about here, the F- FY23, the year to, to 30 June, um, was also marked by TVNZ um, spending a lot of focus on readying itself for um, for being disestablished with the, with, the, um, with the setup of the new public media entity. So uh, there was obviously a, a natural um, slowing down of the activity over the last year while we, we worked really hard on that. Right. And will we know at some point what kind of um, costs you incurred for preparing that work? Because it would have been quite significant, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, look, we, we can, uh, I can get those figures for you. On, on, the, on the merger, you mean? Yes, yes, preparing yeah, for on the, the merger. merger. Look, I, I must say that we've been reimbursed for... Uh, a lot of the um, direct costs that we incurred. Um, obviously, we had uh, a small but but a very dedicated uh, team working on it, so we had to backfill backfill some people. You know, there was um, you know additional uh, you know, travel because a lot of a lot of these discussions were based out of Wellington, so we had a lot of people sort of moving between our head office here in Auckland and Wellington. So a lot of those costs have been uh, reimbursed um, as part of the process. Uh, but but obviously there were some opportunity costs too that were missed while we were sort of focused on on, on um, helping set up a new entity. So um, but you know it was it was a, a, a really interesting exercise and 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 look there was a, a lot of value we gained out of it as well. And I think it's a, a, a lot of insight that that will help us shape uh, the future of TVNZ. You talk about these initiatives that the staff and others are, are, are you know, um, p- putting forward ideas on. 
is there a future for free-to-air television or what will television look like in the heartland of New Zealand in, you know, five, ten years' time? Is this all relating to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the ideas we got from our staff sort of range from uh, better ways of working um, within within TVNZ, um, around culture, around and right through to the, the type of content we have and the way we deliver it to audiences. Look, absolutely, there is still we still have um, huge uh, audiences consuming our products, which are all free to wear. What will change over time is that we know that the, the migration, it's already started, but migration from broadcast delivery to people watching the same content, but delivered uh, in an IP world. And, and, and that's shown up in the, in the success of, of TVNZ Plus, which has been a fantastic product for us and continues to go from strength to strength. What's really important though, I think, is it is not the end of, of linear scheduling of content and, and something that that I think is really important about TVNZ Plus is that it brings an audience in every day because uh, if, if you're watching simulcast versions of our broadcast uh, output on TVNZ Plus, you know, people are still coming in at five o'clock to watch The Chase. They're there for six o'clock for news. They're there at seven o'clock to watch Shortland Street. Um, it is the same content and, and that linear schedule is a way that, uh, that brings, brings people in uh, every day, which is an advantage I think we have over other streaming services or that broadcast uh, video on demand service providers have over, over other services because typically uh, people come in to watch a particular show or a series, they might binge it, they might watch it over time, and then they might depart the, the platform for a while until the next thing comes along that they really want to see. Whereas we have this audience that shows up every day, and that, that's really important. And Brent, just finally, um, you've been interim CEO now for half a year. What's the holdup in appointing a, a you know, a, a CEO, an actual CEO, whether it be you or someone else? Yeah, look, I, I, look, those are really questions for the board. But what I'll say is, we had a um, uh, a substantial board refresh uh, on 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 the day that I started in this role. Um, Look, it's a it's a it's a board that's got a lot of experience in um, and television and the cultural sector, but uh, like any new board, it takes a while for them to get up to get up to speed. And I think they probably needed to um, get a handle on TVNZ and where it was at before starting the uh, the process. The process is well underway now, and uh, um, uh, my understanding is that uh, they're on track to to make an appointment um, uh, this side of Christmas. And have you put your hat in the ring? Look, I, I'm I look I I'm the last person going to speculate on who may have put their 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 hat in the ring, and and it's something that that I'm not going to talk about my own uh, ambition or not for that role. I've got a lot uh, to concentrate on at the moment, Dita, and uh, and look, I'm um, I'm uh, given my commitment to the board that I'm I'm happy to stay in the role until uh, and, until a new CEO is not only appointed but obviously. Uh, turns up as well, which um, which we just just know that with with notice periods and that sort of thing could be um, you know could be uh, into the into the start of um, uh, of next year. Okay, Brent, that's great. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Dita. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz.